Good morning. Praise God. Uh, this morning, uh, I just have the privilege of returning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 10, as we pick up in verse 17. And to start our time this morning, I'm going to ask you if you would please rise and turn to that chapter, and we will read through God's Word together. Luke, chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. Here's what Luke shares. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to read on serpents and, and, and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Oh, how precious is God's word. You may be seated. As we uh, return to uh, Luke's gospel, uh, let me remind you that last week, uh, Jake Bishop asked a, a very provocative question as we look at this topic. And Jake said, who is running the show? Now, Jake made the, the answer very, very clear to us for that question. That the person who is running the show is our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we examine the conclusion of this story, that's a fact that cannot be denied. Jesus runs things around here. So as we pick up this story at how Jesus responds to the news from the 72, let me talk from the subject of when the king rejoices. When the king rejoices. We've, we've just read these passages uh, from Luke 17 to 24, and look, there's, there's a lot of rejoicing going on in this section of Scripture. Uh, there's the joy that is exhibited by the 72, and there's the joy that's exhibited by our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we're going to take a look at both of those. And let me start with the, the joy of the 72, and then we'll pick up on how the Lord expressed his joy. Now, Dr. Luke, the inspired writer of this gospel, begins with words that describe the disposition 
of those whom the Lord has sent out on a very special mission. And to help us to understand the kind of joy that these disciples had experienced, I need to contrast it in just a little bit to the joy that the Lord experienced. You know, the, the, Lord, the, joy, the joy that the disciples experienced was a, a little bit different than the joy that Jesus expressed. Uh, that's why the, the gospel writer really uses two different words in the original language to describe their difference. Now, I'm going to boil the difference down to two issues. Uh, the differences were in first a, a matter of degree, and then the differences was in the object of their joy. First, a matter of degree. Now, Luke shares that the disciples were joyful because of the authority that had been given to them to achieve victory over the demons. Here's, again, how Dr. Luke uh, describes that in verse 17. He said, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, just briefly, contrast that to what he says about Jesus' joy in verse 21. He says, Jesus, in that same hour, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the disciples experienced joy, but Jesus experienced the joy of the Holy Spirit. Both are significant, but there's a degree of difference between the two. Well, how so? I think a little analogy may help us to, to really understand this difference. Now, we all love football here in East Tennessee, right? In spite of what happened to our favorite team yesterday, and I'm glad the Lord inspired me with this analogy before that game. <laughs> but let, let, let me just use a little football to, to break down the differences of these two types of joy. Now, the joy that Luke describes for the disciples was more like that deep, deep satisfaction you experience when you're favored to beat your chief rival by 10 points. But instead, you whip them by 50 points. Now, you kind of figured you were going to win. But my goodness, you had no idea it was going to be by such a large margin. And it felt very very good. So the disciples, they were sent out by Jesus. And they knew that Jesus wouldn't send them out someplace without some measure of success. So they knew that they would be victorious. victorious. But they had no idea that the demons were going to go down in defeat. It caused them a great deal of joy. It's the kind of joy that you have when you beat your rival by 50 points. But let's look at the joy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus experienced. Again, let's go back to this football thing. You know, this time you're, you're facing your biggest rival, the number one team in the nation. They've beaten you 10 years in a row. You've got a good team this year. But realistically, you're not expected to win this game. But to your great delight and to the amazement of everyone else, 
you're hanging in there. And actually, not only are you hanging in there, you, you've gone into the fourth quarter and you're ahead. You, there just might be a chance that you're going to win. But then you've got the ball and all you have to do is hold on. But you fumble. The other team picks it up and runs a defensive touchdown in to go ahead. And by all likelihood, they're going to win the game. They kick the ball back to you. You catch it. You run it to the 50. You guys feeling me? You hit the 50-yard line, and, 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 but you're out of timeout. There's three seconds left in the game, and all you've got left to do is throw a Hail Mary pass. And that's what your quarterback does. And, and the most spectacular play in the history of football, your receiver catches the ball in the end zone, and you win the game. And everybody knows what happens next, right? Everybody goes crazy. The players go crazy. The fans go crazy. And, and you know, when we go crazy, we just act, what? Just a little bit crazy. <laughs> but it's that joy that overflows that you just can't contain. Well, that's the kind of joy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had, except it was 10 times that much. And Jesus experienced that, that joy, but he was cool about it. <laughs> the disciples had their joy, but Jesus had the joy of the Holy Spirit. It was a measure of degree difference. But there's always also that second thing. It, it was the object of their joy. And, and in ways, I think this is the most important difference. For the disciples, they were rejoicing over the fact that they were victorious over the demons. But you know, in a very interesting little way, Jesus kinds of rebukes them for this. You got to jump down to verse 20 to see this. Look at verse 20. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you get it? Jesus tells the disciples, look, fellas, don't get too carried away. It's okay to have joy over the fact that the spirits are subject to you. But, but what you really need to understand is that you should get excited over the fact that your name has been written for all of eternity in the Lamb's book of life. That's what it's really all about. You know, beating up on demons is a big deal. But don't let that make you lose sight of what's truly important. Being victorious over the evil forces is something we should all strive to achieve. And it's appropriate to praise God for allowing us the privilege of serving him in this manner. But I want you to get this. Listen, please, get this. But when it comes to praising God for all that he allows us to do for him, all of that pales. All of it pales in comparison to what he's done for us. He has saved our sin-sick souls 
from an eternity of total separation from his loving presence. And that's a big, 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 big deal. And it ought to make each of and every one of us here who have experienced the soul-saving power of the Lamb to rejoice greatly in our spirit. Let me ask you a personal question. When was the last time you truly thanked the Lord God Almighty for the fact that he saved you? When was the last time that you just fell to your knees and all you had to say was thank you? When was the last time you said to the Lord, I'm so blessed that you've allowed me the privilege of sharing the experience of seeing a lost sinner come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, when? Now, recently during one of our church staff meetings, one of our pastors, Patrick Hobbs, shared how several of our young people had come to know Christ during one of the events that we had here for our young people recently. And, and, you know, I just could sense from Patrick the joy that he felt at being used of the Lord to see, some, see these newborn Christians begin their walk with Christ. When was the last time you rejoiced that your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You know, church, I, I, I've got to tell you something this morning. I think we could all use just a little bit of rebuff that Jesus gave the disciples when the object of their joy was more on their work instead of being focused on what Christ had done for them. The joy of our faith must be anchored by the work Jesus Christ performed to save lost sinners. You know, in just a few minutes, we're going to have the, the opportunity. Let me change that. We're going to have the privilege of joining together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, if there were ever a time for us to step back and rejoice about what the Lord has done for us, it ought to be when we join in the event that commemorates what Jesus Christ has done for us. In participating in the Lord's Supper, if participating in the Lord's Supper has just become another one of those church things that we're obligated to do. There's something deeply off-focused about our faith, if that's the case. You know, taking the Lord's Supper should be one of the most moving and special occasions that we as his children should ever participate in. Please, please, never let this become mundane for you. But, but let's move on. Before I talk about the king's rejoicing a little bit more, let me go back and pick up verses 18 and 19 that I kind of skipped over. Verses 18 and 19. Let me remind you what those two verses said. And he said to them, I saw Satan falling like night lightning from heaven. 
And behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and, and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That's two very interesting verses, aren't they? Now let me deal with those just briefly as well. Well, what is this thing Jesus is talking about, Satan falling from heaven? Now, several interesting things here. For instance, uh, I think Jesus was making a very significant theological point. And he wanted to make sure that the disciples didn't miss it. You know, the disciples may have been dealing with the minions, but the real enemy is the kingpin himself, Satan. By pointing out our real enemy, I think it was just another way Jesus uh, was using to put the disciples in their place. Jesus is not pointing out, only pointing out who is really significant in the battle, but he also takes the time to introduce when the demise of Satan will take place. Now here's something to note. This verse does not indicate that by these particular events that had just unfolded, that this was the final defeat for Satan. That could be the case. You continue to read in the New Testament and throughout the New Testament record, all the way to the book of Revelation, we see that Satan is still actively involved in this world system. For instance, uh, if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, that's uh, recorded by Dr. Luke in the book of Acts, uh, Acts 26, uh, verse 18, listen what Paul tells to those wise guys on Mars Hills. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Satan's very active, even today. And the fact of the matter is that he will continue to be very active until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is not inferring in this verse that Satan is done. But what he is saying is that Satan's Demise is a done deal. It's one of those already but not yet realities that we so often see throughout the Holy Scriptures. Now, Satan is a dangerous enemy, but he's a defeated enemy. And that's something we ought to rejoice over. By sending the 72 out on a sacred mission, and then having them return victoriously, Jesus has sent a clear message to the evil forces at work in the world. Their time's running out. These events had sent shockwaves throughout Satan's kingdom. A new power was on the rise in the world, and it was coming from the most unexpected of places through an army, an army of outcasts who had been rejected by the powerful of the world. Now, Jesus does another little bit of correction here. He, you know, the disciples referred to uh, the, the enemies as demons, but, but Jesus calls them spirits. It's a mild correction, but it's significant. 
Uh, Jesus was continuing to ensure that the disciples understood that their insight into the battle was limited. He, he didn't want them to get a little bit overconfident. That's an insightful word for us today. We need to be careful when it comes to dealing with satanic forces. We don't want to lose respect for the fact that although Satan is defeated, he can still deliver a very powerful punch. In fact, the Bible is very clear with us about how we ought to deal with Satan. The brother of our Lord, James, makes it perfectly clear for us what our best strategy is for dealing with Satan. Uh, it's, it's captured in James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Uh, you ought to underline these in your Bible and, and have them handy for you when, when it just seems like the forces of evil are just raging all around us. Uh, go to James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Here's what it says. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist. I ought to just stop there. Underline that word. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When it comes to dealing with Satan, we ought not be double-minded. You know, I, I hear some of my brothers and sisters in Christ declaring that they've got Satan under their feet, and they're stomping all over him. Well, I think I'm going to stick with the instructions that Brother James has provided and ask the Lord to help me to resist the devil by drawing closer to God. And that's not a mistake that the 72 made. After being instructed by Jesus, the disciples realized that the power to deal with satanic forces did not emulate from within themselves. Rather, it was through the name of Jesus. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I think I ought to get an amen from out there somewhere. Amen. amen. Thank you. So, so let me talk all back, back to the joy of the king. So here again is what Luke says and writes for us in verse 21 and 22. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. Now, for all of those, uh, those, the, those, those Calvinists out there and reformists that love to talk about the sovereign will of God, verse 22 is right in your wheelhouse. But before I jump into the deep waters of God's sovereignty, let me make this very, very clear. I think there's no doubt that the Bible presents the fact that God is sovereign. All things happen to accomplish his good will. And I also believe 
The Bible very clearly teaches the truth of human responsibility. We are all totally accountable to God for each and everything we do in this life of our free will. You know, theologians over the century have debated about how both of these are true. And I'm not going to add anything new to that debate. But, but what's important to me is this, that I hold to both truths. Because both of these truths are taught in the Bible. Now for this morning, I'll focus a little bit heavily on the sovereign will of God. Because that's what our text contains. And I'll do that. But I still got that joy thing I need to go back and talk about just a little bit more. Uh, I said earlier that Jesus was exuberant in his joy. It was just overflowing and coming out, out of him. You know, that is the nature of spirit-inspired joy. Uh, this is the joy that is not achieved through human effort. You just can't work yourself up into a frenzy and declare it's spirit-induced joy. There's a lot of craziness going on out there, and, and people trying to say that uh, the spirit is moving me, but, but I think we need to be very careful about what we claim is of the spirit. Look carefully at how Luke shares about the way Jesus expressed the joy that was of the spirit. In a very clear and controlled manner, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, gave a clear and cogent message of truth about God the Father. Here's what Jesus said in verse 22. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've revealed these things to the wise and understanding them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. Jesus' joy had nothing to do with himself. It was all about the will of his Father. It was all about doing God's work his way and only his way. It was about the graciousness of God and coming to value only what God values. When these things become the focus of our joy, then our joy, our joy overflows. Verse 22 all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one who knows the Son, who, know who the Son is, except the Father. Or who the Father is, except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now let me jump into the deep pool of God's sovereignty. And here's a sobering truth. Unless God chooses to reveal this specific truth to you, you will always be in the dark. Unless God chooses to reveal this specific truth to you, you will always be in the dark. In this verse, verse 22, Jesus lays out a very logical and clear description of the sovereign decree of God in this regards. It goes like this. Four bullets. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, bullet one. Bullet two. No one knows who the Father is but the Father. 
but the, who the son is, excuse me, but the father. Bullet three. No one knows who the father is but the son. And then that last bullet. Only the son decides who gets to know the father. Let's take a look at each one of these. First, all things have, handed over to me, have been handed over to me by the father. You know, I, I love what uh, Pastor John MacArthur uses, how he summarizes all things. And it, it, this is what Pastor John says. He says, all things, every circumstance in their universe, whether in heaven, earth, or hell, involving angels, men, or demons, have been handed over to Jesus by his Father. The Father's sovereign purpose set forth the plan of redemption in motion, and he has given the Son supreme power to bring that purpose to pass through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. Now, that fits the context of this chapter, of this passage real well. Jesus has sent his disciples out on an evangelistic mission to demonstrate the power of the gospel against the power and the forces of darkness. And, Jesus, and God didn't send his son out handicapped in any way. The mission's too important. The God-man, Jesus Christ, has been given everything he needs to guarantee success in his mission to build the kingdom of God. And that mission specifically had to deal with the salvation of lost souls. That means you, and that means me. Now, again, it was cool to take out those demonic forces arrayed against the kingdom of God. It's got to be done. But done with a specific purpose in mind, and we must never lose sight of that purpose. The purpose is to free the people of God from the slavery of sin. So Jesus starts this whole logical progressions out with, I'm the one who is, who's in control. And Jesus is saying, who's running the show? I am. The Apostle Paul puts it uh, in a very interesting way in John 14, 6. He says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me take a look at bullets two and three together. No one knows who the Father is, but the, who the Son is, but the Father. And no one knows who the Father is, but the Son. Hey, I call, call these two bullets a statement of what I call first-level facts. You know, all facts are important, but some facts are more important than others. Here's the fact. Before the world was created, the triune God existed. They existed in perfect relationship with one another. Their relationship was based on total knowledge of each other. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existed together in total unity within the Godhead. They knew each other intimately, totally, perfectly, and completely. 
Jesus is declaring with these two statements that there's nothing about the Father I don't know, and there's nothing about me that the Father doesn't know. And there's one thing the Father knows about me. I will always seek to do his will, and only his will. Jesus declares, and it's a wonderful declaration, I am God with all the rights and privileges that come with that fact. But when it comes to carrying out this mission, it's all about doing the will of the Father. And I'm totally on board. The Father is totally trustworthy. Now the question moves on to what has the Father decreed? And that's the fourth point. And that bullet again was only the Son decides who gets to know the Father. Now that's another statement of fact, but I also think it's a statement of action. In eternity past, the triune Godhead, through the divine power of the Son, decided who would get to know the Father. Now to go back and to to really demonstrate that, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let the Bible speak for itself. You know, sometimes the best message you can ever have is just to read the Scripture. So here's what God says in the richness of His words. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. You've got to have this lined in your Bible. This such richness about the will and the, the holy decree of God is captured in these verses. Verse number, starting at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished. I just love that word. Lavished upon us. You know, Christmas is all about lavishing one another with gifts, right? If you really want to lavish someone, go back to this lavishing. Verse number eight, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Wait, let, me, let me read another one. Only the Son decides who gets to know uh, the Father. I, I love what the Apostle John says in John 6, 44. No one, I don't know who no one leaves out, okay? But it says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Yeah, that's a powerful truth that needs to get sunk deep 
in your heart. Just back up a little bit in, in John chapter 6 and go to verse 37. L listen to what John says here. Uh, this is just glorious truth, y'all. Uh, my, my heart rejoices over this truth. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose any of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone, human responsibility, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Oh, that's glorious truth, y'all. That's rejoicing truth. We, we ought to be happy in our spirit over that truth. But, but let me tell you what. Here's, here's a passage that really makes me happy. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I love this verse. You know, sometimes when I'm, I'm down and, and I don't think that I should even call upon the name of the Lord, when I'm not even worthy, who am I that, that God would love me? The Holy Spirit moves in my heart. And he takes me to Philippians 1, 6. And this is what he says. And I'm sure of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in that day of Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm so glad God put that verse in there for me. He's going he's to make it happen by his divine power. And for every one of you that is called upon the name of the Lord, that's the truth of the scripture for you as well. All things verse 22, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one who knows the Son is, is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Let me close with the last, just briefly looking at the last two verses, and then Doug's going to come, and we're going to get ready for the Lord's Supper. Jesus said in 23, verse 23, then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You know, there are many reasons we ought to be grateful today. Satan and his minions are clear and present danger. But the freedom that we have in Christ does not distract from the fact that life is full of troubles and trials and tribulations. But yet, we ought to still be grateful. Why? Because we have the profound privilege of seeing unfold in this age the plan of the king to save sinners from their sin. Even the prophets and the kings of old did not have the privilege of seeing what we've seen. And more importantly, they didn't have the opportunity that we have.
to join in the mission of our great king. And that's a privilege we should never, ever lose focus on. So as we come and we celebrate today the Lord's Supper, we're always mindful of what Christ has done for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 26, here's how the Apostle Paul describes that scene that unfolds for the Lord's Supper. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given bread, he gave thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New, Test New Covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Doug's going to come. We're going to pray. And then we'll proceed to, to take the elements together. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, the God who set the stars in the heavens in their place, the God who sets high in his holy temple, the same God who meets with us when we're in the lowest of our valleys, who walks with us and talks with us and lets us know that indeed we are his precious own. To that great God this morning we come with rejoicing in our spirit that Christ has come to set the captives free. And Lord, as, as we pause to uh, remember your suffering, uh, to remember your sacrifice, we ask, Lord, that you give us clean hearts. Lord, that we've looked deep within our souls and, and we've asked that you've had mercy upon us. And so, Father, as we prepare to, 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 to take the, the bread that represents your body, as we come prepared to take the, the wine that represents your blood, Father, we ask that you just continue to bless us, this your people, as we are obedient to you.